welcome to COG, where we discuss current issues in women's health. This month on COG, we talk about sex with Dr. Deborah Wickman, the Director of Sexual Medicine at Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona, and we'll discuss two offerings from the latest literature in Journal Club. My name is Rachel Nugent, I'm an ONG from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, and today while Ted Adventures in the Scottish Highlands, I'm joined by newest member of our COG faculty, Dr. Jane Reeves. Thanks for joining us, Jane. All right, Rachel, thanks so much for having me along for your podcast. We are looking at doing a bit of a segment about who we are and who our listeners are for COG because we are doing this for us as trainees and as consultants and as midwives. So we want to know who our listeners are and we thought we'd start with a bit of a sounding board seeing as I'm new. I'll jump in and tell you a bit about the day in the life of Jane Reeves. I'm Arisa Franzkog. I currently work part-time as an SMO in Queensland Health, and I'm a mum to two toddlers, and I'm very grateful to our wonderful nanny. I start my day at 4am, either spontaneously or woken by my tiny dictators. I then feed, dress, said tiny dictators. I wash and hang out the washing and prepare myself for work with black coffee, many of them. Um, my working day starts at 7.30 with a handover at 8 in the morning, and I then have clinical duties between 8am and 6pm and they consist of a mix of birth suite, antenatal clinic, gynaecology and colposcopy clinic. I'm a general obstetrician and gynaecologist and I'm also lucky enough to do a basic ultrasound clinic and a preconception counselling clinic with the obstetric medicine physicians. I do have some admin time as well and that's filled with compiling the after hours on call roster for the consultants at our service, debriefing patients and checking results, letters or attending meetings. When we do on-call, it covers from 6pm of the working day until 7.30am the next morning. We then share out weekends and Fridays. I then get to come home to my washed, fed, tiny dictators, courtesy of my wonderful nanny, and I get to read copious books until bedtime. Would I do anything differently? Maybe throw a podcast in the mix. (laughs) Maybe throw a podcast in the mix. Oh, thanks for sharing that, Jane. So if you are interested to share with us a day in the life of, please email me at cogconversation at gmail.com or get in touch with us via the Facebook page. We're keen to hear from the wide range of listeners who enjoy conversations in obstetrics and gynecology. Now to this month's conversation. Today I'm talking to Dr. Deborah Wickman, a gynaecologist at Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix and also from the U of A College of Medicine where she's the Director of Sexual Medicine. I'm really excited to be talking to Deborah today. Thank you for joining us on COG, Deborah. Oh, you're welcome. Pleasure. I really enjoyed your anecdote. Would you mind telling that one? Sure. Early on when I started talking to women about sexuality... I always uh, kind of define the goals women have in seeking me out and working with me. And so I asked a patient, what is your goal in having a session with me? And she said, well, I really want to have great sex. And I said, fabulous. What does that look like to you? How will you know when you're having it? And she looked very perplexed and said, wow, I have no idea. I was hoping you were going to tell me. And that's really something that hit me as a great example of what we're all seeking, but we don't really know what it is. And so I think that's the big starting point in the discussion of, you know, don't let me define what great sex is to you. Really nobody can define that because we all have to search ourselves for that and our own connections. And then we'll find that 
and our own definition. Yeah, and it was interesting to hear that story and to think that our patients might be coming to us thinking that we are the keeper mm-hmm. of that information because uh, we're gynecologists and we specialize in exactly. this. Exactly. I mean, if not us, who? Like I said in my talk, we're the guardians of the genitals. We're the ones who women rely on when something's going wrong or when things are even going right for pregnancies, for wellness care. They expect us to know the whole spectrum. Like I said, the three P's in terms of gynecology as I see it should be equally weighted, pregnancy, pathology, and pleasure. But unfortunately, much of Western medicine has disconnected from the pleasure side of that. And we aren't very well equipped to help women with their questions about pleasure. And so one of my goals is really rerouting our education so that general doctors, gynecologists, obstetricians, family doctors, primary care doctors, we all are better equipped to handle those questions and bust those myths and help our women understand pleasure just as well as they understand the other two. So I really, uh, like I guess, I really enjoyed that discussion around you know, how the genitals are a source of pleasure. Um, And what draws us to obstetrics often initially is that treating women at a normal, you know, for a normal lifetime experience, supporting healthy people doing what they do. And it was really refreshing to hear that same frame applied Mm. to gynecology and and issues with, with sex, not being a pathology, but just helping people through um, a difficulty. Right. I think it's really sad when I hear women's expectations framed and that done having children think they're done with the gynecologist or the obstetrician and especially since the message in the last few years has even been received about wellness exams that oh we don't need to do them we don't need to do pap smears and women often hear that as we don't even want to see them anymore and so I think we really need the opposite effect after children we still have such a vital role. And that's what really drew me into obstetrics and gynecology. In the beginning was that lifelong relationship of trust when they trust you to help them with their pregnancies and deliver their babies. You are somebody they're going to remember, a vital part of their family story. And so that relationship is to continue when we help them through surgeries or help them through whatever pathology problem they might have. Who better to talk to them about pleasure than a doctor who they trust and to be comfortable in asking about that and saying, How's, how is your, is your um, life satisfying? Are you getting what you need? Do you know what you need? And um, it's really more than that because when they feel, when a woman feels good about her sexuality, that reflects a radiance that really up all aspects of her life, not just the one with her intimate partner. She feels more confident, more happy, more satisfied with life in general. So I think it's an honor and a a sacred duty we have to help women achieve that and to know that part of themselves. And as you said, it starts in that history taking. Mm -hmm. Um, So we do I think, in gynecology, tend to approach sex through a pathology framework or a risk assessment model Mm. where we ask questions like, are you sexually active? What's your sexual orientation? Mm -hmm. Do you have any history of STIs? Mm -hmm. 
few of us ask about sexual satisfaction. Mm-hmm. What can we do to change that? I think part of the problem is a fear of, oh, I don't even want to open that Pandora's box because how long will that take me to have that discussion? And do I even know what to say about it if they say they're not satisfied? So I think we should be really fearless in leading that discussion because it's not that they expect us to know all the answers, but we need to have in our arsenal places to turn them toward, resources online or a local person who is equipped, like myself, who has developed a specialty in keeping up with all of these discussions and who knows, you know, the best way to help in that instance. But all of us should be able to ask the question about sexual satisfaction without being embarrassed and um, willing to hear the answer. And literally, that answer typically is a short one. Then you can just turn them toward their returning for another visit if you feel well-equipped or latch your little list of resources and colleagues who are well-equipped to help. But women need to have help with return. It's a difficult issue because of the time management Mm -hmm. because if someone has abnormal uterine bleeding or an Mm -hmm. abnormal pap smear, there are very defined ways that we manage those Mm -hmm. things. But if someone discloses they're having difficulty with having sex, then you know that that requires asking more questions about their emotional well-being, uh, their mental well-being, their relationships, their social aspects, mm-hmm. and it can be uncomfortable for mm-hmm. the woman and for us as care providers, mm-hmm. and being able to take that time is difficult. Right. And the last, it's, it's even worse if then the woman feels dismissed when she does try to answer your question and not ready to hear the answer. So we need to have an easy way to screen. There are very brief screeners available that a woman can fill out while she's waiting for you to come in the room that you can at least get a heads up about which domain of sexual function she feels she's having concerns about. And you can lead the conversation further with, you know, here's some further paperwork you can fill out before you come back to see me next week and we can devote the whole visit to this concern so she can have some thoughtful time to fill out a more extensive questionnaire or sometimes I tell them please write a journal in about three pages I give them three or four questions to write a paragraph about and bring it back and so then we can start the next conversation with going through what her responses to the questions were and it's really questions dealing with that satisfaction and looking inward how she feels about herself and, you know, how she feels about the expression of her sexuality. So these women who are at high risk, it's women postpartum, mm. postoperatively, mm-hmm. um, postmenopausal and perimenopausal women and women with chronic illness. So what kind of tools do you have for assessing these women? There's some pretty easy to identify mm-hmm. risks. What kind of clinical tools do you use to identify these women? There's some questionnaire screeners that are helpful to um, identify. For instance, the postpartum issue, we are really good at asking them to come back at about six weeks for that visit. When we check them over, we make sure their breastfeeding is going well. We make sure they've healed from their laceration or episiotomy and make sure that they don't have you know, blues or depression. We need to take it one step farther and say, 
instead of just giving them the green light to resume sexual activity, we need to inquire how they feel about that. Importantly, they need to know that if they do start to have a problem, pain or low desire, even difficult orgasm, which they might not have had prior to the pregnancy, we need to make sure to tell them that they need to return and deal with that. A lot of them think, well, I'm not supposed to come back till my next annual exam, so left wondering what to do because they don't really have anybody else to turn to and they can't ask family members. Their partner usually has no idea. Mm. So that's a specific, uh, especially vulnerable group of women I see. And um, there are some interventions to do for them. So <clears throat> it's important to give them permission and actually the directive to follow up if problems develop over the next month. Other women, like um, those that just receive a cancer diagnosis or those that go through surgical menopause or even natural menopause, it's just important to intervene because you're likely the one who's involved with whatever that pathology was to begin with. Actually then take the next step to say, this is going to affect your sexuality. This is likely to have an impact on your sexuality. So let's talk about what that might be and some options that could alleviate that or lessen it or resolve it so that you can start the conversation forward instead of having to react to negative things that they've already been dealing with for months or even years. And intervening early yes. as for lots of things improves so much, better. much quicker than mm-hmm. waiting. I was really interested in the group you talked about, the women who experience a post-op reduction in sexual function. So mm. they're women who've had a hysterectomy and then there's a particular group of women who 10 to 20% of them will experience a decline in sexual function. And this was at odds with what I'd learnt um, previously mm. in my counselling uh, of women that hysterectomy shouldn't affect right. your sexual function. But there is a group of women who are particularly at risk. How do we identify them and counsel them preoperatively? Mm. Well, the biggest risk factors for poor sexual function following surgery are undiagnosed, satisfying sexual function prior. Maybe they've been so preoccupied with whatever pathology has been going on, whether it's prolapse or leaking or bleeding, they haven't really noticed. Maybe they haven't even been having sex because of those problems. The other thing is undiagnosed depression. And so... Those two things, sexual satisfaction prior to surgery and depression, can be easily screened for and intervened with before you take them to the operating room. If you find that the person has developed deficits, however, um, post-operatively, it's important to deal with those and figure out, is it hormonal? Is it the nerve function? Have nerves been affected as part of the surgery? Sometimes... Um, other issue ask about preoperatively is what type of orgasm the woman typically experiences because if the hysterectomy does affect plexus of nerves right around the cervix, she may have an alteration in her vaginal orgasm. If she is having a concomitant sling procedure, for instance, or any type of incision in that anterior vaginal wall that might affect innervation and branching structures of those periurethral or schemes glands. That's going to have an impact on her vaginal orgasm. 
Many women aren't aware of the difference between vaginal orgasm and clitoral orgasm components, but to those that do have a significant vaginal contribution, if you haven't discussed that ahead of time and they find a big deficit postoperatively, they're going to be very upset. So it bears a fruit to just at least ask the question about the orgasm. First, they'll be surprised that you're asking them about what types of orgasms they have. And it also gives you an indication of how tuned in they are to their sexuality. And so that leads to even more important conversations. You discussed this interesting concept of the hormonal gear shift in Mm -hmm. sexual wellness. Are you able just to outline that for our listeners? Mm Because I I really enjoyed that description. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the way I have organized that framework is really the sex steroids, estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone have a vital interaction with our brain neurochemicals that either emanate or guide the limbic part of the brain through reward, attachment, bonding, love, desire. And there can be synergistic relationships or antagonistic relationships. And so an easy way to organize that is really this hormonal gear shift where you think of the gear shift in fifth gear where you're going full steam ahead, um, that's really the testosterone and the um, dopamine aspect. As physicians, we really like to step on the gas and try to provide prescriptions that are going to go full steam ahead like that. Think of first gear smoldering along in forward momentum. It's really estrogen, oxytocin, because those are conducive, but they're not the full-on engine grinding components like the first two I mentioned. And then we have reverse gear, which is actually antagonistic, and that's the progesterone, the serotonin effect. So if you kind of think of that framework as either that's working for you or working against you, it's helpful, especially in uh, most women will understand that analogy as well, and um, makes it more clear in how you're guiding their Attention and their therapy and uh, recommendations. We need to provide things that, you know, I also, in companion with that, talk about either unloading the brake pedal and stepping on the gas with this hormonal gear shift because it doesn't help very much with forward momentum in a smooth, efficient way if you're trying to step on the gas with prescribing things that are dopaminergic or testosterone related. But you still have heavy things on the ga- on the brake pedal, like e- emotional baggage or relationship issues or even medications that are serotonergic. So we need to be mindful about unloading that brake pedal or writing prescriptions or doing therapies to step on the gas. And that um, gear shift kind of helps frame it, frame the conversation. Yeah, absolutely, and it lines it up very clearly. So we do have a medical audience, so I'd mm-hmm. like to talk a little bit about stepping on the gas yes. and the utility of testosterone mm-hmm. um, for the management of these kind of problems. When's it indicated? What uh, type of preparation mm-hmm. do you like to use? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have advice for practitioners about the use of testosterone? Yes. Um, in the U.S., I'm not sure about Australia, but in the U.S. it's still not approved by the FDA, which doesn't mean we can't use it. We just have to be very mindful about counseling associated with it. And also that means in our country we don't have any 
FDA-approved, dosed, readily available, insurance-covered type of product for women. So we're relegated to prescribing compounded type of um, testosterone products like creams, gels, lingual drops, lozenges, or pellets. Or we use testosterone products that are FDA-prescribed or FDA-approved for men, use them at a very tiny dose, about a tenth of the dose for women. So it gives us a bit of a disadvantage when trying to use testosterone because we don't have this readily available product for women. But we can get around that. It just has to be very individualized treatment and monitored closely. In our country, even with the compounded products, we cannot extend a prescription longer than a six-month span, which I think is a good um, it's a good rule in that forces us to be monitoring women. I typically monitor them very closely in the beginning. Of course, the counseling has to be very expansive, involving potential risks and benefits, and the fact that they understand that it's not FDA-approved for women and that it cannot be prescribed in pregnancy, so they need to be practicing a consistent form of contraception that will prevent them from getting pregnant if they are not menopausal. And then we just have to be careful about following up serum levels, as well as if they are experiencing any adverse effects, dosing appropriately, and dose rather conservatively. But yet, that can be very effective. You mentioned a calculator that you use to uh, determine appropriate dosing. Mm-hmm. Um, are you able to just give the the link for that? Um, yes. It's very easy to find if you just even Google free testosterone calculator. The website will come up, but it's I believe it's the ISSM.ch, and it will come up as a free tool. You just plug in information like sex hormone binding globulin level and the total testosterone level, hit calculate, and it will calculate the free testosterone, which is shown to be very accurate, and I use it on every counseling session that I do when I'm prescribing testosterone because we really don't know what the body is doing with the testosterone or if the dose is effective unless we know what the free testosterone level is. And it's really helpful to know what sex hormone binding globulin level that woman is producing. It helps us know so much more than just expecting the lab to calculate a free testosterone level for us. And that, the lab-generated one, has actually been shown to not be as accurate as the hand-calculated one that I just described. And so what level are you aiming for? We know that from research that the upper 10% level for women is about 1.0 nanograms per deciliter. I find that that's a good range to shoot for. I find if you're right around 1.0, you get good benefit without the virilizing side effects that no one wants. You can push it a little further than that um, if needed, but again, I emphasize the individualized nature of this. And then you know that if you're far below 1.0, you have some room to go, and the woman, you know, it's justified if she isn't feeling much of a benefit from the dose if she's, you know, well below the 1.0 nanograms per deciliter benchmark. Right. So that's a very, um, that's a medicine. 
essentially. Yes. Yes. There are other ways to step on the gas that are not quite as, um, I guess, invasive as a medicine. Right. Um, more lifestyle things that you can mm. do. So uh, you mentioned um, for testosterone the Amy Cuddy TED Talk. Yes. <laughs> and the power posing. Yes. Um, which I regularly prescribe to mm. anyone having interviews or performance mm-hmm. anxiety, and I was yes. very interested to hear you <laughs> use it uh, in this context. But yes. you also talked about uh, activities to increase dopamine. Mm. Um, and so what what kind of activities can people do to increase dopamine? Really, um, there's been some great studies in some of the relationship research that I like to tell women about. Um, dopamine very much stimulated when we challenge or achieve a a goal, a task. And I find it especially so if you do this with your partner, if you, you know, join some kind of contest together or even learn a new novelty is another way to really enhance dopamine. If you learn a new skill together, maybe take some dancing lessons, maybe go to a nude beach. I mean, anything like that that's something new and pushing your edges even if it's uncomfortable, because you're doing it together and you commit to that, um, it really improves the dopamine between the two. So um, those are a couple of the things. Um, you also mentioned 10 seconds of deep kissing. Yes. Is that evidence-based? <laughs> it actually is. It's been shown that women do uh, receive a little bit of their partner's testosterone through the saliva. Huh. Now, the study did not go on to show whether the males receive any of our estrogen. So that would be an interesting <laughs> corollary. But they seem to be just fine from it. So maybe uh, the implication is that um, we're good getting a little bit of their testosterone. and um, Kissing is a kissing, safe activity. It's a safe activity. And, you know, what I, what I realize, you know, we all know from our own lives in long-term relationships it's one of the first things that starts to diminish. You know, we give little pecks. We say we love each other, but we often don't engage in the deep kissing, the making out sessions that we did back when we were dating or even first married. So I encourage a return to that. Often we have to be intentional about it, and there's nothing wrong with kind of scheduling that type of activity. But it, be, it really enhances the relationship. It gives you something to look forward to. And it helps also to reminisce with your partner about times when you felt the most turned on. Actually, prescribe that as a meditation practice with my patients to go back and recreate little DVRs in their brains, in their minds, accessing specific experiences they felt the most turned on and um, engaged with their partner. What were they doing? And think about all the sensory things related to that and relive that. You can do that during foreplay when you're wanting to stimulate your own arousal. That kind of activity increases dopamine and oxytocin. And it's a challenge to kind of corn that concept with your partner and say, if you could pick three of the most turned-on times you've ever had with me, what would they be? And what I find often is that your partner comes up with ones that you didn't think of. It helps to really um, grease that feel in the mind, you know, set that neural wiring into motion. We know the brain is is wired to recall significant events like that. I mean, how often have we been driving down the road listening to the radio 
and a song comes on the radio from high school, instantly your mind is carried back, uh, you know, some of us longer years than others, mm-hmm. <laughs> but instantly you recall exactly where you were that was significant when that song was played and who you were with and, you know, many things about that experience. So our brains are wired for recall. I challenge my patients to do is make their own recall um, events and practice recalling them. And what we know from research is when you do that regularly, the um, arousal mechanisms will start to be conditioned toward that so that when you start to begin thinking that thought, if we had an electronic tampon in your vagina, you would start to see changes in pH, changes in pulse amplitude, um, changes in temperature that would indicate arousal even below the conscious level of most women. So it really is an empowering way for women to take charge and start to control their own arousal process. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's exciting science. Yes. Um, and it works. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, the So that's a little bit about stepping on the gas. Yes. Now, when you talked about meditation and mindfulness mm. prescription mm-hmm. i'm really interested to hear you apply it in that way mm-hmm. because i automatically assumed that that was more about um uh, taking your foot off the brake so reducing right. stress and uh and it does do that and that sort of thing you mentioned that you prescribe a daily meditation or mm-hmm. mindfulness practice how does that look mm. um so i find so many women that i interface with are so busy taking care of everybody else and taking care of their job, balancing children, spouse, career, parents, what have you, friends. We always put ourselves on the back burner, and there's a tendency to just not even provide self-care. And we can go through decades like that. So this prescription of mindfulness meditation is really that first step toward reclaiming some of that self-care. Amazing to me how sometimes it's a negotiation to even convince a woman to take three minutes to begin with twice a day. She thinks, well, how can I get three minutes or what will I even do during that three minutes? But I challenge them to start with that because anyone can start with three minutes and then advance that to five minutes, then to 15 minutes. I find once they're doing 15 minutes, a day. They really maintain that or they expand it even further because it's so helpful. What it does is not only unloads the gas, um, unloads the brake pedal, but it really helps them kind of smolder along in first gear because it helps it helps emit oxytocin in that limbic part of the brain. They feel better about themselves. They feel better about life. Part of that meditation, I encourage them to do, start with a gratitude practice because most of my patients don't know they're going to think about. hard for women to quiet their mind and not think about their to-do list or uh, you know, all of the things they need to just motor through the day and get done. So it helps to take the first three minutes is to really just, I tell them, picture ten faces of people in your life that you're grateful for. Um, so I tell them, take... The first, take about three minutes to picture ten faces of people in their lives that they're grateful for and just... 
Thank you. Okay, we'll try this try again. One more time. <laughs> so, a lot of women don't even know what they're going to do during that three minutes. It's hard for them to quiet their minds and not just contemplate their to-do lists and all the things in their busy lives going on. So I give them a framework, a few minutes, even that full three minutes, to picture ten faces of people in their lives that they're grateful for. And one at a time, close your eyes and visualize that person's face and just put your hand over your heart and send that person blessings. Send them love. Tell them energetically how you're grateful for them in your life. Just smile to them in your mind and move to the next. You find by the time you've done 10 of those, you feel so much better. You've just ratcheted yourself up on that emotional scale, and you're better ready to start your day. It helps to change these faces out um, today, and some, on some level, they probably even receive that blessing, and they feel better for the fact that you offered that to them, you know, into the into the air. <laughs> but um, that's one way to um, frame things for them. It's easy. Everyone can access and people in their lives that they're grateful for. And then I have them move on toward other things, whether it's looking on YouTube, putting in the search on YouTube for, you know, um, meditation on decreasing anxiety or meditation for peace. There's thousands of options on YouTube that are free that then I encourage them to out and listen to five or ten minutes of those and if something resonates great if they don't like it move on to a different one but pretty soon they start to find certain styles certain um, authors or you know practitioners on youtube who they do resonate with and then start to follow them a little bit more so it's a practice that's self-fulfilling that way and i hold them accountable because when i see them next i ask them to tell me what is it you're listening to, what is it you're meditating to, that kind of thing. And then we, we talk about more ideas or more options or more ideas that they take it from there. Well, Dr. Wickman, we both need to go to a oh. session. <laughs> okay. Would, Time flies. I would love to talk to you a lot longer. Um, yes. Uh, but I think that gives us all a great start, at mm. least, for yes. uh, managing women having difficulty uh, in this arena at least to know what questions to ask and Mm. um to to find some resources about where to send people Mm -hmm. i think the women of arizona are very lucky to have you and i look forward to more work coming yes coming out of your clinic um many more things will be happening i um have a website that's drdebrawickman.com so if people are interested in hearing more about what I'm doing, you can tune into that. Stay tuned. Yeah, the IPEP examination is particularly interesting. Um, Yes, I could do a whole uh, discussion on that for you in the future. (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. So thank you very much for joining us on COG. You're welcome. My pleasure. It's great. Thank you. That was Deborah Wickman talking about great sex and how we can help women find it. Another great resource on this topic is the Green Journal's latest podcast, Sexual Health Following Cancer. Check it out, it's very useful. Next up, Journal Club. 
This month on Journal Club, we discuss two offerings from the latest literature. And the first one is from the Journal of Sexual Medicine. It's entitled, A Meta-Analysis Detailing Overall Sexual Function and Orgasmic Function in Women Undergoing Mid-Urethral Sling Surgery for Stress Incontinence. The authors are Nicole Zell and uh, several co-authors, and they've completed a meta-analysis using databases such as PubMed, Ovid, Medline, and LexisNexis. And they were looking specifically for pre- and post-op questionnaires considering sexual and orgasmic function following surgical procedures for stress incontinence. The particular procedures they considered were TBT, TOT, or TBTO. So after they completed their literature search, they found five RCTs, four retrospective cohort studies, and 14 prospective cohorts, and they analysed sexual function and orgasmic function separately. Interestingly, what they found was that 67% or two-thirds of women having had mid-urethral sling procedures showed no change or improvement in sexual function postoperatively. Only 33% of women showed an overall improvement of orgasm function after a sling procedure. So overall, in women undergoing TBT, mean sexual function and orgasm post-op scores were significantly higher than pre-op scores, but in women undergoing transobdurator tapes, the mean sexual function score was higher, but the mean post-op orgasm scores were not significantly higher. So those women didn't experience an increase in their orgasm scores post-operatively. This is a fairly well-done meta-analysis looking at this issue of sexual function after transvaginal tape surgery. The most interesting thing that it looks at is the hypothesis as to why transobturator tapes might cause a decrease in orgasm function relative to transvaginal tapes. And the authors hypothesise that that's because the transobturator tapes might cause more localised injury to crucial nerve endings that are inherent to sensation and orgasm or that that sling stays more in the mid-urethral dissection long-term and affects the periurethral glandular tissue, which contributes to female orgasm. I liked two points that they made. One is that they acknowledge the role that urinary incontinence has pre-procedure, the impact it has on sexual function and sexual enjoyment. Obviously, if you're having coital urinary incontinence, or even if you're generally incontinent and have changes of escoriation to your vulva and or just the psychological impact of feeling wet, then you are going to have potentially reduced satisfaction with sex. So I like that they acknowledge that. In regards to their results and their hypothesis around what mode of sling is going to have the biggest impact or the potential for improvement in sexual function look I think both their hypothesis are valid and it's one of those areas where you can you know make some assumptions have some clinical creativeness to define why that is happening Uh, and I think it would be a bit tough to kind of flesh out exactly why it is. So the hypothesizing that the differentiation is between women who experience vaginal orgasms versus clitoral orgasms ties into some of Deborah Wickman's work. And they talk about the nature of the surgery potentially affecting the impact on orgasm function. Traditionally, women who experience clitoral orgasms, that tissue and neural pathways aren't affected by TVT surgery, whereas if a woman experiences vaginal orgasm, the periurethral tissues and nerve endings are impacted by that surgery and so that may be a reason that those women experience a decline in their sexual function. It's hard though that wouldn't be a reason necessarily not to do this type of surgery if you were someone who was avoiding sex or not enjoying sex because of incontinence then you may notice a reduction in orgasm potentially from your pre-incontinence functioning 
But if you were comparing incontinent sex with continent and potentially reduced orgasm sex, again, that's for the individual woman to choose where she is actually going to get an improvement in sexual function and sexual health. Yeah, and I guess it just highlights for me that this is an area of research that has been neglected for a long time, that we haven't really been doing these pre and post questionnaires as routine part of gauging how good our surgery is or or the impact of our surgeries. We look at other things like prolapse recurrence, estimated blood loss, need for blood transfusion, uh, very hard clinical markers, whereas these kind of more subjective markers are probably equally important but haven't been as rigorously sought after. I was really pleased to see that the group who published this paper is currently working on a questionnaire to allow assessment of orgasmic function as part of procedural decision-making, a pre- and post-operative questionnaire uh, that they're hoping to validate. So watch this space. Yeah, I think that's great because unfortunately I think we're in good company or at least broad company in neglecting how important female sexual satisfaction is. It's been brushed aside or not talked about or thought not to be important because not many people have spoken up for the G-spot. Okay, our next article that we're going to have a chat about today comes from the Journal of Midwifery. And it was published in 2017, but the data comes from about 10 years ago. The article is entitled Sexual Pleasure and Emotional Satisfaction in the First 18 Months After Childbirth. Authors are Ellie McDonald et al. And the study is a prospective pregnancy cohort who were investigated with a survey at enrollment and follow-up at 3, 6, 12, and 18 months postpartum. So women involved in this study were first-time mothers who were recruited early in pregnancy across six public maternity hospitals in Melbourne. And they undertook surveys, one at recruitment and then the follow-up surveys. So the questionnaires were all aimed towards assessing physical sexual pleasure and emotional satisfaction. Data was also collected on common sexual difficulties whether people have had an interest or a lack of interest, a lack of lubrication, difficulty reaching orgasm, vaginal tightness, vaginal looseness, bleeding or physical irritation after sex. The data was also collected, of course, on maternal social characteristics, so age, relationship, country of birth. And interestingly, the data was collected around how satisfied women were with their partner's contribution to household tasks. So before we delve into that chestnut, 1,535 women were enrolled into the study. Look, they had really good follow-up people who got the questionnaires, got most of them back over the 18-month period, 88%. Over three-quarters of the women had resumed vaginal sex by three months postpartum, and by 18 months postpartum, only 2% of the population had not. So they did have a good number of women having sex and so therefore a good ability to interpret how satisfying that sex was. It's really difficult. It's such a heterogeneous group being postpartum. It's really hard in a study to say how for the individual things like tiredness, depression and breastfeeding have an impact. You know, there's things too. Did all of the women who reported high levels of sexual satisfaction have a more settled infant? You know, they don't look at things like how much sleep you're getting, They don't look at all the pre-pregnancy part of this too. How long were you in a relationship with your partner? Had you planned this pregnancy? What was your financial situation? You know, all of those things that impact on your general well-being that therefore have a flow-on effect to your sexual function. 
they did look at same-sex couples, uh, but they had such small numbers, they didn't do an analysis and didn't sort of include that in here. And they didn't have the ability to comment on male satisfaction or the partner's view of the sexual health. I think this paper is really interesting because it aims to tie together that aspect of sexual function with the emotional overlay that is inevitably tied to how we perceive our experience of sex. I agree with you, Jane, in that they we don't have any prenatal data about how these women's experienced uh, sex before pregnancy. And I think that's a really important thing to see if they've regained their prenatal function or if there's been a decrease or what was the starting point for what we've ended up with. What I like about this paper is the observation of the evolution over time of sexual function in a relationship and and sort of emotional function as well, showing that at three months postpartum, people found both their emotional and sexual function extremely pleasing or emotionally satisfying. And then from the point of three months postpartum, the emotional satisfaction of the relationship starts to deteriorate i think as the the novelty and happiness of a new baby starts to turn into the daily grind of having a baby and having to look after it all the time that women found the emotional nature of their relationship less satisfying there was an interesting rise in the corollary of that of the sexual relationship became more satisfying over that sort of six to 12 months, as you imagine the woman recovered from the childbirth event with cessation of breastfeeding and the impact that that has on sexual function, 17% at 12 months of women found sex extremely pleasurable, but it's still only 17%. And so I guess that's where I'm really interested to know what the prenatal function was, how many of these women found sex extremely pleasurable before they were pregnant is 17% a reasonable number or are we looking at a massive impact on their experience of sex as a pleasurable thing? The other thing I agree with you uh, on is the impact of breastfeeding on postpartum uh, sexual function. Women who reported breastfeeding at six months postpartum had lower odds of reporting very or extremely high levels of sexual pleasure. This is, they acknowledge, probably has a big physical uh, impact. You've got engorged breasts, you've got reduced lubrication potentially. Uh, And so in contrast, though, there was a weak borderline association between breastfeeding and emotional satisfaction. Mm. So whether there's something to do with a really pleasurable bond with your child during breastfeeding and maybe that improving your emotional relationship, I don't know. Um, But it's good to see that there was some positive aspects around sexual health to breastfeeding and they didn't just focus on that negative physical aspect, some of which can be fixed, right? Different positions if you've got discomfort with your breasts during sex and lubrication, we can provide support, either hormonal or non-hormonal for that. When we talk about emotional satisfaction at six months postpartum, women who were extremely or very satisfied with their partner were much more likely to experience uh, sexual pleasure at six months postpartum. So the odds ratio was 5.51 for women who were extremely or very satisfied emotionally with their partner. These other associations weren't significant for sexual pleasure, but 
protective factors to ensure that you were more likely to be emotionally satisfied with your partner were being happy with your partner's contribution to household tasks with yes definitely being the most protective for emotional satisfaction that is a cracking odds ratio it is 9.21 women who were yes definitely happy with their partner's contribution to household tasks were nine times as likely to be emotionally satisfied with their relationship at six months postpartum and then the other important factor which lots of new mums will talk about or maybe more so done it before mums is time to yourself so women were more likely to be emotionally satisfied if they had time to themselves once a fortnight or once a week at six months postpartum and what do they say is you know what does each woman interpret as time for yourself? But I think that is so important. And you did say that multi-gravid women are more likely to be aware of this uh, and push for it potentially. And so they would maybe have a higher rate of emotional satisfaction potentially. But it is important. Uh, you know, loss of identity when you become a mother and that loss of primary self or time to yourself surely has an impact on more than just your emotional satisfaction and it's important to see that highlighted. I think the take-home message is that if you are the partner of a woman who has just had a baby, learn to use the vacuum. And the dishwasher. And the washing machine. So that's it for this month's episode. Ted and I will both be attending the Ranscorg Annual Scientific Meeting in Adelaide in September. So if you wanted to catch up with us and share your feedback or ideas about the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Next month on COG, we'll be talking to Amanika Kumar from the Mayo Clinic about enhanced recovery after surgery. I was lucky to catch up with Amanika at the ACOG Congress and we discussed ERAS protocols as they've been instituted in her institution and how facilities might be able to get ERAS protocols up and running in their own facility. Great, I look forward to it. So thanks for joining us on COG, Jane, for your first episode. Thanks for having me along for the ride. We'll see you next time. Bye.